Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going through the pastoral epistles on Sunday morning. I remind you of the key verse for 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15. But if I tarry long, Paul is talking to Timothy, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So we have a handbook on uh, church growth, a handbook on how we're to behave in church here in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5 is where we are this morning. We'll be looking at the first 16 verses. We're living in a world that seems to have forgotten the concept of honor. To honor means to show recognition and respect to those who deserve it. Some people say, well, they don't deserve my honor. Let me just give a few verses, a uh, panoramic view of what, uh, of what the scripture tells us that we're to honor. The Bible tells us in, Roman, in Romans chapter 13 that we're to honor governmental authorities. In verses 1 through 7, we're given instructions specifically toward our government, and then verse 7 is a summation uh, that says, Render unto all do their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. The words tribute and custom there uh, talk about the taxes or uh, the the things that are given on on income or goods paid to the governments, even foreign governments, foreign rulers. The next two words describe the attitude a person is to have as he pays those fees, those taxes. Um, Fear and honor, there's to be respect shown even when the taxation was unfair. I'm always reminded of the example of Joseph and Mary who were traveling to Bethlehem because a king wanted to number the taxpayers. The Bible gives us no indication on that journey that they complained. They simply complied. And uh, we ought to learn a lesson from that. So we're to honor governmental authority. The Bible also tells us that we're to honor our masters, 1 Timothy 6.1. The fifth commandment tells us to honor uh, children, to honor their father and mother. Uh, the New Testament tells us in Romans 12.1, or 12.10, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. So we're to honor one another in the church. And then we're to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, John 5.23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth the Son... Um, Honoreth the Father which sent him. In our text today, we'll learn from Paul's instructions to Timothy that we should encourage different age groups in the church. That's in verses 1 and 2. And then in the next verses, we have a section that talks about honoring widows. This is a very practical passage of Scripture, and I think we can learn much from it today. So the title of the message this morning, Encouraging Others and Honoring Widows. The first two verses... Uh, Paul tells Timothy about four different age groups that are to be dealt with and how he's to deal with them in the church. First um, Timothy chapter 5, let's read verses 1 and 2. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. 
We start here with older men, and we, we have the question that comes to mind immediately. Is he talking about a church officer? We've seen before, presbyteros, those elders in the church or pastors in the church. Is he talking about that, or is he talking about men who are older in the church? Well, since these two verses deal with uh, also younger men, older women, younger women, some say this is not talking about a church office. I believe that we can make the application to both. We said last week that Timothy, uh, at this point, was a young man, probably 30 years of age, and Paul was telling him at that point not to let anyone despise his youth, but he was to be an example of the believer in word and conversation and charity in spirit and faith and purity. A lot of people would have been older than Timothy in the church at Ephesus. So how is he supposed to approach an older man and deal with him in areas of his life that perhaps need correction or he's going through difficulties that need to be addressed? How does he do that? And again, I think the application can be, how does the church respond to, to pastors? First, Paul instructs Timothy what not to do, and then he tells him what he should do. Uh, rebuke not an elder. So he, he's not to rebuke him. Now, you, if you read ahead and, and look down at verses 19 and 20, we read these verses. Against an elder, receive not an accusation. And here the context is uh, an elder, a, a, an officer in the church, a pastor. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin, what does it say? Rebuke before all, that others also may fear. Well, that looks like contradictory advice. Rebuke not an elder, and then here, rebuke before all. Well, I believe the answer to this seeming contradiction is found in the different words that are used for, in the original language for the word rebuke here. In chapter 5 and verse 1, rebuke is a word that means to chastise, to censure severely. It's a harsh word of correction. The root meaning of the word is interesting. It means to smite or to flatten out by pounding. Have you ever baked anything that needs to be flattened out? I get that picture in my mind. To flatten out, what a picturesque way of telling Timothy how not to treat an elder. Homer Kent says it's, it means to smite with words rather than fists. Have you ever felt after you've had a conversation with somebody else and you're going home and you say, boy, I feel beat up. <laughs> That's the idea here. In chapter 5, verse 20, there's a different word that's used for rebuke. Even an elder, when the accusation is validated by credible witnesses that have come, he's to be rebuked publicly. It says, before all, the result is so that others may fear. That is, sin is serious business, and it needs to be dealt with. And here the word rebuke means to expose, to reveal, to tell a fault. Unfortunately, we often hear pastors and churches and leaders who, who fall miserably into some kind of sin and bring shame on the name of Christ. That kind of news spreads quickly, doesn't it? We hear of men who've been immoral, some who've absconded with church funds, some are guilty of, of crimes. What's the church to do? Even when it comes to church leadership, Sin needs to be confronted. Unfortunately, a lot of churches just look the other way, and if they do excuse the pastor from the current responsibilities, they find that he moves somewhere else and starts over again. Sin is to be dealt with on every level, 
But the approach here is to be cautious. Two or three witnesses, it's, love, it's done in love, it's not this harsh pounding, but exposing an error. The evidence is laid out in a kind, in a concerned manner, and sin is exposed. Well, rebuke not is the negative. What's the positive advice that Paul gives to Timothy about how to approach an elder person in the church, an elder man? He is to be entreated as a father. The word entreat is a translation of, of the Greek word that we've often seen, parakaleo, to call alongside of. It, it's, it's a word that's translated to encourage, to exhort, to comfort. Particularly in this context, to encourage this person, is you, you want him to come back to a place where he's living his life that's pleasing to the Lord. That often involves some correction or counsel. The imperative verb, this entreat, is not only here for the elder, but it's understood to apply to the other three groups of people in these two verses. This confrontation or correction is then not getting in someone's face and yelling at them and trying to correct them that way. It's an honest exposure to God's word. It's an arm around a person's shoulder saying, let me show you what the scripture says. When I read of Nathan's confrontation with King David over his sin with Bathsheba and then consequently killing Uriah, her husband, I see this kind of compassionate entreaty. Nathan told the story about the rich man and the poor man, and the rich man went to take the poor man's one ewe lamb to feed the traveler who showed up. And David's response was, he was incensed. He said, the, the rich man deserved to die. And then Nathan said to him, thou art the man. And I think this was done in a loving and a compassionate way to David. What's the intended result when you exhort others, when you entreat them? Well, you hope to see confession, a genuine confession of what, what the fault is, an agreement with what God says about that sin. And then you often look for contrition. It's not just some, someone saying, oh, yes, I, I did that, that was wrong, uh, let's, let's move on. But th there should be some kind of a sorrow over what's taken place. Not that it was brought to light, but that it took place in the first place. And David, I think, expresses that when he says in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I done this wickedness in thy sight. You hope to see a change. So confession, contrition, change. The change may, if it's rebuking an elder who's in the ministry, a pastor who's in the ministry, it may be leaving the ministry. A change can only come about when sin is confronted and confessed and there's contrition of heart. Each age group in the church is, is given a label that shows that they are treated as family members. Did you notice that as we read through it? You to entreat an elder as a father. How do you entreat your father? Well, you, you pray a lot before you talk to him. You, you respect, you have respect for him. You go carefully. You've chosen your words. You want to get right to the heart of the matter. Notice as we come to the younger men, how are younger men to be entreated? As brothers. The temptation here would be for Timothy to go to someone who's, who's younger than he is and say, well, I, I don't need to have any respect for him, might come with the, I'm older than you, you need to respect me, have a superior attitude, but you're, you're to go to them as a brother. He's not below you. 
He's unequal. And then the older women. They're to be treated as, entreated as mothers. What do you do when your mom is doing something wrong and needs to be corrected? You remember all the times that she corrected you and say, now it's my turn? <laughs> no. Most, most parents are not going to respond well when their children come to correct them. It should be a lesson to us in humility. We need to open, be open to that. But as you go to a parent, you need to pray for wisdom. You, you go with a plan that you'll see something that, that they'll see what's best for them, what changes need to be made. Remember the definition of entreaty. It's not this face-to-face -face confrontation and yelling. It's a gentle yet honest exposure to the word of God. It's a desire to help that person make, become more like Christ. And so older women are to be approached with this concern. Now younger women. Paul says, Timothy, you're, you're to treat them and treat them as sisters with all purity. All there means total, absolute purity. Nothing looks wrong. For Timothy or anyone in the ministry, this entreaty with all purity means that you don't have any appearance. You don't allow any, any others to think that this is even a possibly any kind of impriety. It doesn't look right when a man spends a long time talking with a, a young woman about even about spiritual things. While Timothy is just as responsible, responsible to be a spiritual shepherd to everyone in the church, including the younger women, there are other passages that give some insight on how best we can help get enlist others to deal with those matters. Paul told Titus that he ought to let the older women teach the younger women about personal relationships. We'll get to that in our study of the pastoral epistles. But let me just quote uh, Titus 2, 4, and 5, or read. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. It's much more appropriate to have an older woman in the church work with the younger women, counsel with them, entreat them, especially when it comes in the matter of how to dress, how to have a relationship with her husband at home that's loving and her children, and how to have a pure life before Christ. So younger women, entreat them as sisters. So Paul's explained to Timothy how each age group should be ministered to, should be encouraged, should be comforted, should be confronted, and they should respond as unto Christ. The next section shows how widows are to be honored in uh, chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. These 14 verses describe uh, the treatment of widows in, in three different categories. And often we, we mistake them as we read through it, just putting everybody in the category that we would think of as widows today. But first of all, we have widows who are in financial need. And then we have widows that are specifically involved in church ministry. And then also um, widows who are younger. So let's look at the widows in financial need. Those are in verses 3 through 8. Honor widows that are widows indeed. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. 
Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. These things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his house, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Again, what does it mean to honor? Homer Kent writes this, Honor was understood to include providing financial support. As Jesus made so clear when he scolded the Pharisees and teachers of the law for dodging their responsibility through the use of the, the Corban exemption. Remember in Mark chapter 8, verses 7 through, or 8 through 13, uh, they, they said, I'm going, not going to help my parents because it's Corban. They, they, were, they were claiming that this, this money had been dedicated to God, and, uh, and so they didn't have it to give to their, their parents. So who's really a widow here? It says widows indeed. You'll see that phrase in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 16 in this passage. Here there are, there are stipulations of those who are genuinely dedicated to God uh, and, and haven't neglected their responsibility. Um, widows who are the church is supposed to honor. A widow in our current society, usually we just think of someone whose husband is no longer living. The idea in, in the Greek society, in Greek culture, is much larger. It means anyone who is left alone. It could be someone was deserted or divorced. It might be that uh, the husband has been imprisoned and she's alone. Or even, and this is one that, that I hadn't thought of, but as I was reading, some, some, there was polygamy in those days. And when a person came to Christ, he realized this is wrong, he should have one wife, and so he had to choose and send the others away. And so those would be widows. The church has responsibility to all those widows, no matter what caused them to end up the way that they are. Let's look at the widows that were to be helped by the church. What kind of widows did the church honor? And again, in this honor, probably financial help. First of all, here's a checklist. She has uh, no children or nephews at home who can take care of her. The word nephews can actually mean any relative. It could be grandchildren, uh, any relative in the family. And so first of all, these family members were told to show piety at home. Piety is the respect, the support, the honor. And also the word requite, to requite their parents. You ever think about what that old English word means, requite? It means to pay them back, to, make, to give something in return. The United States Department of Agriculture uh, publishes every so often a report that tells how much it costs a middle-aged couple to raise a child until the age of 18. That report was last done in 2017. An 18-year-old, by the time you've invested in that child, you've spent $233,610 here in the United States. Factoring inflation, they say, that number in 2023 is $2,914. Now, if you charge your adult a child just a simple 3% interest rate compounded annually, by the time you reach retirement age of 65, they owe you, this is requiting, this is scriptural, $607,000 uh, rounded off. 
I don't think parents are, are looking for that kind of payback, a return on their investment. But, yeah, they pay in grandkids, right? But I do think we should agree with John in what he wrote, 3 John 4, I have no greater joy to know that my children walk in truth. We'd love to see that payback. Well, it's the family biblical, it's, it's, it's the obligation of families to take care of those in their family. Parents, grandparents, honoring them, taking care of them. What does the scripture say? It's good and acceptable before God. That is, in God's presence, this is good. The word there is attractive. This is appropriate and acceptable. It's proper. It's not the government's job to take care of widows. It's not the church's job. It's your responsibility. It's the family's job. So number one, no other family help. And sometimes, sometimes that happens. It could be that they have family members, but they won't help or can't help. And so still, I think that comes back to the church's uh, obligation to help. Secondly, this widow is to be of godly in, in her behavior. Watch how she's described. She is desolate. That is, she's left alone, no family to take care of her. She trusts in God. That indicates that she's a believer. Evidently, some believers heard about uh, some of these, uh, uh, the things that the church was doing for the widows, and they said, I'd like to be a part of that. And so she trusts in God. Third, she prays, implying that she's not only a believer, but this is real in her life. She's living her faith. And we have the description of what her prayers are like, supplications. She's entreating the Lord, specific requests. And then she's praying just on, a, on an ongoing basis, this general term for prayers. Notice when does she pray? Continually and night and day. Third, she's not living in pleasure. That is a, winner, a widow who is to be honored, doesn't live a selfish life, spending her money and all of her time without any consideration of others. This description in verse 6 shows that those who do for their, live for their own pleasure are not really living. Did you notice that? She that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. To have pleasure in God in, and, and in what he provides is one thing, but to live for pleasure is quite another. Fourth, she's to be blameless, above reproach. It's the same characteristic that we found in the qualifications of pastors and deacons earlier in the epistle. doesn't mean that she's perfect, but she's above suspicion. No one can accuse her of wrongdoing. So let's review the four qualifications of these widows who are to be honored with financial help. No family members in the picture. She's lived a godly life that's marked by a trust in God and prayers. She's not living in, in selfish ways, in indulging ways. She's above reproach. Now, why is it important to care for those in our own family? Verse 8. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of, of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Provide here means to plan ahead, to make preparation for. And if we don't do that, for those in our families, it is a denial of the faith. That doesn't mean that you're no longer saved, that you've lost your salvation because you didn't help some widow. But it's saying that love for those in need is at the very heart of our faith. 
How can we say we love God if we treat others with that kind of neglect? It's foundational. It's a characteristic of, of genuine faith. And if we don't provide for our own family, it shows that we're worse than an infidel. Unbelievers, even the unsaved, have that sense of obligation and take care of family members. Those are widows in need. Now let's look at widows in the church ministry. That is, those who are, who are paid as Christian workers. We see them in verses 9 and 10. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. The idea of this being a, a, a special class of, of widows who work in the church is, is the, that phrase, taken into the number. Probably a list of names of widows who worked around the church instead of a list of widows who might have needed financial aid. Notice the, the stipulations here. She's to be at least 60 years old. Uh, I guess that's the only time it's okay to ask a woman her age if you're <laughs> going to have her in the church working. Um, secondly, she's, she's uh, to have been faithful to her husband. Okay, he's no longer in the picture. She's been faithful. She wants to serve the Lord some way now. It's the same construction as a one-woman man, the qualification of pastors and deacons. Now, a one-man sort of woman is the description in order to be numbered among those who are Christian workers in the church. She was to have a reputation for good works. These good works are evident in five areas. Child rearing. And, and I think the stipulation here is either her own or others. One writer says, Paul does not here depreciate women who were unable to have children or who had had the gift of singleness. Such fulfill different roles in the life of the family of God. Since having children was the norm, however, he gives this as a general principle. A woman with no natural children of her own could manifest this quality by raising orphans. Only a woman with such experience could instruct younger women on how to rear godly children. And so she's one that is able to, she, she has either been around children or knows how they should be brought up. Second, hospitality, that hospitality to strangers. Third, a humble service to believers. Washing the feet, that was the duty of a servant. It was a, a humbling thing. And so she, remember Christ washed his disciples' feet. She's willing to do that. And fourth, a benevolence and assistance to those in distress or under pressure. If she have relieved the afflicted. And then diligence in service. She's devoted herself to. This is, this is something that she's willing to do. Diligently followed. So now we have widows in need. Widows as Christian workers. Last, younger widows, verses 11 through 16. But the younger widows refuse. That is, don't put them on the list of, of those paid workers in the church. Okay? They're under 60 years of age. The younger widows refuse. For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry having damnation or judgment because they have cast off their first faith. And withal, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also in busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, 
Bear children. Guide the house. Give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some are already turned aside after Satan. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows, and there's that phrase again, widows indeed. So younger women are not to be chosen in this number of the list of serving because of the possibility of remarriage. And Paul says in verse 14 that they should remarry. They should marry. It's a good thing. And they want to, might want to marry again. Or because of lack of maturity. And there's a, a list of things here that uh, unfortunately is true in some cases. Idle or trivial activity. Tattlers, gossips, talking nonsense. Busybodies, that's a person who moves around, literally. A person who, who meddles in other people's business. Another word for busybody is found in 1 Peter 4.15. That's the one who is an overseer in the lives of strangers. <laughs> uh, the last, revealing secrets and that they shouldn't. Spreading, spreading things, whether it's true or, or not. Uh, so because of lack of maturity, they're not to be chosen in that number. And third, because they should remarry, have children, manage the house, give no occasion to be reproached by the enemy. Over 16 concludes the responsibility of the church toward widows. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, help them financially, and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. You say, what effect did something like this, this practical instruction of Paul to Timothy, what effect did it have on the church at Ephesus? Let me read what Kent Hughes says. The number of widows receiving church support was reduced to those who qualified financially and spiritually. And some Christian families re-shouldered their sacred responsibilities. And thus, the Ephesian testimony brightened before a pagan world. But there was more. Many of those godly widows were given an avenue of service. They not only received according to their need, but they were allowed to give according to their ability. This is a wonderful passage of scripture. It's not just about finances. These widows were given dignity and position, and the younger widows were encouraged to embrace life to the glory of God. Well, this passage teaches us how to challenge and encourage men and women in the church ministry of all ages. It also shows us how to really honor widows. God is concerned how the church responds to those who are often overlooked, who may have great needs. May we determine this morning to treat others honorably for the sake of our testimony and for the glory of God. I hope we'll respond to this very practical passage of scripture. It's not a 4th of July message, I know that. But it's something that I think we need. Let's encourage one another to live for Christ within our church family. As we approach people of different ages and different needs, let's go with that concern and compassion that, that Paul shared with Timothy of how he's to go to others. Let's also determine to look around and find out who, who is in need. And let's respond 
with, with tangible help to those persons who are really in need. Let's show honors, uh, honor to those who have lived godly lives. And if you're on your own at this point in your life, don't think there's nothing else left for you to do. Ask the Lord to show you how he wants you to serve him. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that today each of us would come before you and examine our hearts and our lives as we always do, especially when your word is opened, that it turns a searchlight on our conscience and on our, uh, on our actions. And I pray that we would uh, be conformable to the word of God and to your will for our lives. Lord, I pray that if there's one here today who's never trusted you as their Savior, they don't know for sure if they were to die today, if they'd go to heaven or not, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation, that they would talk to someone and say, I need to know for sure how I can go to heaven. And I pray that you would work in, in all of our hearts, make us more like Christ, and give us a compassion for others and an effort to, to serve you in this church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.